0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 274. Thank you for tuning in. I've got a great guest this week. Um, it's the writer and showrunner. We will discuss what the term showrunner actually means, because you're seeing it a, a, about a lot. I'm a bit sniffly. I apologise for that. Hay fever's kicking in. Um, but it's Jed Mercurio, who's the, the writer, creator, showrunner of um, Line of Duty the biggest show of the year um, at time of recording, Bodyguard, one of the biggest shows of recent years, certainly one of the biggest new shows of recent years, Bodies and numerous other things. And we had such a good chat. It's the first time we've met and we set it up directly, which is always really nice. It always seems to take a lot longer if you're going through a load of different people. So it was great to set it up with Jed and sit down and chat, and he was so honest and open. There's some amazing insights into all the series mentioned there. There's some insights into his transition from a doctor to one of the, the UK's most successful screenwriters. And again, his openness is is on the table. He goes in on some uh, <laughs> some poor journalism, let's say. So yeah, it's a hell of a chat. I hope you, you all enjoy it. You may have noticed that there was a bonus episode on Monday. If you missed it, go back and give it a listen. It's unnumbered because it's a it's a rewind. This week or tomorrow, I don't know when you're listening to this, actually. So June 20th is, uh, well, Refugee Day. And I've worked with the IRC in the past on this. I've worked with the British Red Cross in the past on this. And about four years ago, I think, I had a podcast where I sat down with a refugee called Ramel, and we discussed her journey and her life, and it's a hell of a conversation. So I re-released that on Monday at the start of this week. Um, I would have released it on refu- Well Refugee Day, but because the main episode, the new episode, comes out on Wednesdays, I thought it will all get a bit lost in the mix. So I put that out on Monday and the reaction has been amazing. So thank you so, so much for that. If you missed it, go and have a listen. If you like this and you want to hear more from writers, I've had Kurt Sutter on, who's the writer of Sons of Anarchy, The Shield, The Bastard Executioner, and numerous others. Um, who else have I had on? I'm not sure. I've, I've had loads of good people. If, you, if it's a Line of Duty thing, I've had Vicky McClure on. I've had Stephen Graham on. So I've had a good, a good few of the, the line of duty crew, yeah. C- c- Give them a listen. My Patreon s- s- secret club got incredibly excited this week because I had another s- screenwriter and showrunner that I've recorded a podcast with that's coming out in a month or so. But I reveal them just after I've recorded them. I put it up. I put a photo of us up on the on the Patreon, which is a dollar a month. Patreon dot slash pip. Um, and they were very excited about this one. But yeah, anyway, um we've also have have the distraction pieces rewind over on patreon.com slash scroobiuspip. pip. And this week in fact today we might have just stopped stopped the web store, speechdevelopmentrecords.com, records dot com, with a certain item that we released the first limited edition run, and they sold out in about an hour. So we've released one more limited edition run, and it's the last one. I won't say any more than that, but you might want to head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com and to see if you're in luck. But let's get on with the podcast. It's a wonderful chat. I learned, I mean, as as someone who's um, acting now as their primary focus, but someone who's also screenwriting as part of that primary focus, this was a hell of a podcast for me or a hell of a conversation. The amount I learned from it was fantastic. So, yeah, as I've said numerous times, as much as you guys show so much love for the podcast, there's no one who gets more out of it than me. So um, I appreciate you tuning in and all the love, and I hope you enjoy um, episode 270... What number did I say it was? 274 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Jed Mercurio. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction this piece of fiction is the intro to the structure. This piece of fiction is the intro to the structure. This piece of fiction is the intro to, the the intro to the Yeah, just dive in. And we're fine when the coffee arrives, it's okay. fine. It's all ca- it's casual <laughs> podcast world. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm joined today by Jed Mercurio. How are you, sir? I'm very
1: well, thanks for having me on the show.
0: It's it, You're someone I've, I've wanted to have on for a while, but I always think these things, it's all about timing, and now felt like the perfect timing, because... The first time I was going to hit you up, it was before Bodyguard had happened. And now, if it had been a few months ago, it would have been in the midst of the, of, of the Line of Duty promo period. And now we're kind of in the, the post-Line of Duty glow, right? Because, you know, it's always been a critically acclaimed show. But for at the moment, for it to be the biggest show of the year in the UK, it must be a nice, a nice position to be in.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's great when so many people watch, yeah. uh, and it's great for the team. You know, we we're a pretty close-knit team. We get on very well. Um, Those of us have been involved in it right from the beginning. Uh, so a couple of us behind the scenes, and then uh, the regular cast: yeah. Martin and Vicky and Adrian. So yeah, it's been a great journey, and to see the show still growing after all this time is incredibly pleasing.
0: That's exactly it. It's been that kind of amazing slow build as such that seems to have got people so hooked and so invested in it rather than this, here's our big new show, get into it immediately. It seems to have been that people were rushing to catch up. People had been watching from day one. It feels like a a, a labour of of love in that way because it wasn't just something that came out and had a huge marketing budget, huge push. It's just, no, we're going to keep building this on quality and then, you know, we'll get there in the end.
1: That's right. I mean, we started on BBC Two. Yeah. And um, so in terms of the BBC internal commissioning process, they didn't think that we stood a chance on BBC One. Right. I uh, thought that we probably wouldn't find an audience. So we were very fortunate that we got an opportunity on Two and did well enough that we got recommissioned. And so it's been a slow build. And then that decision... After series three, to move to BBC One, yeah. Uh, again, that was something that there were pros and cons to. There was a certain amount of trepidation about whether that would be successful, but it's great, you know, the, the fact that uh, our audience has got bigger, that people are still invested in the show. Yeah. I mean, obviously, people have opinions about one series versus another, of and course. so on, and that, that's all part of the banter.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 it. It, it makes me think instantly of the wire of the kind of. Critically acclaimed yet there'll always be someone like oh but series three is the best oh it's not as good as series and that always confuses me because particularly when there's a new series and this feels like maybe the, the 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 best received series of the lot but with so many shows people would be like it's good but it's not as good as the last series it's like but we've seen the last series and that's still there or as long as it's good and we're in increasing upon the story and building the drama that's got to be a positive our obsession with comparison seems like a strange Mm. thing of the social media era
1: yeah and also i think that you've got to kind of look at those comparisons and see see what lies behind them yeah i think that when you've got um easy access to uh, opinion platforms like social media then it means that people do want to come forward and they do want to say what they think and that's fine but what really gives you an insight into what the audience as a whole, the millions of people who are line of duty viewers think yeah. is the audience research. And and I've been fortunate enough to see a, a document that is so top secret. I'm probably not even allowed to speak <laughs> about it, but it does compare the performance of all five seasons against yeah. each other, against various parameters. And actually see, season five does very well. Yeah. You know, the, the, there are people who have said certain things about how it related to previous seasons in terms of being worse or better or whatever. Actually, the numbers are pretty flat in terms of that yep. that analysis. And then there's always strong opinion towards the end about whether the, the last episode is a, a satisfying watch and, yeah. and fits with what's gone before. And again, the data suggests that it's the, the way we concluded the series is as strong a stronger performance as in any previous season.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely. But there's always there's always that urge on, on now, I guess, because it's interesting because the life of the series spans kind of pre-real social media attention. And also, I think another thing that should be taken into consideration these things is pre-Gogglebox, because genuinely that's, that's a massive influence on things. I'd imagine as a creator, particularly if they're, if they're enjoying your show, to genuinely watch these people watching your show and getting excited and enjo- enjoying it. I know v- v- Vicky and Martin and a few others have all spoken how exciting it was at times that they were so hyped about it. So how's that been to watch that development as the or through the life of, of one sh- show, I guess, so far?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it, it, it maybe represents how TV's developed over recent years, that that there are platforms that allow people to analyse TV and talk about it. And I think that's part of the fun. You know, one of the the casualties of TV viewing becoming very atomized, so that overall audience figures were going down across the mainstream channels and there was a migration towards um, watching box sets on streaming services where you are watching out of sync with your mates or with your yeah. family. You're maybe watching content that other people aren't even aware of. That ended up maybe meaning that that a lot of the conversations about TV um, weren't weren't as as, as vibrant and, and enjoyable as they or, used to be. Well,
0: the dawn of the, the term spoiler killed off so much conversation of film and TV. A, f- a few years back, I had a film club at the at the Prince Charles Cinema, and one of the points of it was we'd watch a film that I'd, I'd selected had nothing to do with me. I just selected it because I thought it was an amazing film that I'd watched on DVD or something i hadn't watched on the big screen. And then we'd d- d- discuss it afterwards because because of the, this this spoiler culture, it feels like you, you watch a film now and you can't talk about it to anyone or a TV show. You can't engage and talk about it anymore because we're all watching it at different points and different times. So that takes something of the enjoyment out, I think. It should be a social thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, I think also... When you you are fortunate enough to be associated with a series that that has been watched by a lot of people, and it's largely been watched in a linear fashion, so even if people aren't watching during the hour of first transmission, they're watching within twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah. So that that does create that kind of nostalgic atmosphere around TV.
0: Yeah, and it is it is one of the the BBC, I think, are really good at it because I think. I love the Netflix approach of everything is there in one go and you can watch. But Line of Duty, um, t- Taboo on the BBC, which is one that I was in, so I'm biased on that. But it was one they, you were in, yeah. <laughs> but but they were shows that felt like people wanted to watch them on the day and talk about them immediately. Game of Thrones is another great mm-hmm. example. People want to st- either stay up or watch first thing in the morning. Yeah. I think that's a good thing, right? That, that we're going back to... Or we're finding shows that have that draw and excitement that it's like, no, I can't just watch this when I want. I need to watch it as soon as I can.
1: I think the trend is also that live viewing goes up towards the end of a run. Yeah. So in, in terms of the specific example of Game of Thrones, because this is the last ever season, uh, there has been more of a, a, an impulse to watch live. Of course, yeah. because it's going to be talked about more than any other season. Yeah. Um, and what we find with, with Line of Duty is something quite similar and same with Bodyguard, which was that at the beginning of the run, the first few episodes, there was a significant component of viewing that was post-live. And as we get towards the end of the run, particularly the, the last episode, the majority of, of the viewership is live.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it builds up that... That need and demand. I think a a lot of people as well, I tried doing it myself. A lot of people like to build up a few Mm. so they've got that start of a binge. I had to stop because of a group message I'm on with Stephen Graham and a few others that suddenly blew up after a certain episode. I was Mm. like, right, I don't know, I don't want to know what's happening here. (laughs) So it kind of, it it forced my hand a bit there. Um, Mm. I I do want to talk more about line of duty and a lot of people will have tuned in to hear about that and obviously multi-award winning international award winning bodyguard but i think uh, talking about both of them feels like starting a box set on series three because i feel a crucial part of your kind of journey as a as a writer or your journey into writing as well is 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 bodies Mm. which is another series i've i've really enjoyed and it feels like a great starting point because you kind of almost accidentally came into writing. You were tr- 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 training as a doctor and had been in the in the RAF. Mm. And, and was it that you answered a and and an advert or something yeah. to write for a BBC thing, and that kind of snowballed into a, 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 a lifelong career of, of writing? Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had an unusual routine. I, I went to a very ordinary comprehensive school. No one in my family or no one I knew was remotely connected with the media yeah so the idea that I I would ever get involved in making tv seemed incredibly unlikely and so I went into uh, medicine I studied science in school it was something that I kind of enjoyed and and I had an aptitude for and then while I was at medical school I joined the air force and I what I really wanted to do was aviation medicine um, and it was during that period um, when I was in my first job as a doctor, my first house job yeah. uh, in Birmingham, that uh, I saw an advert in the British Medical Journal, a TV production company were looking for advisors on a new medical series that they wanted to develop. And it just kind of triggered me in some way. You know, I was, I was working in the early 90s in the NHS when it was, it was pretty tough for junior hospital doctors. Yeah. And I felt that that was a story that wasn't being represented in medical drama on TV back then. In fact, if you watched medical drama that was on at that time, it felt like it was representing hospital life from the 50s or 60s rather than the 90s. So I kind of went and I think ironically one of the things I told them was that the way medicine had been portrayed on TV was was a big part of the reason that I chose to go to medical school and having started practice i now realized that it had all been a big lie yeah and so that that was something that they were really interested in and i was very fortunate that they helped me develop my ideas
0: yeah it's it's, it, it it feels like the kind of thing that are one of the most popular jobs that kids want to have when they're older is being a vet and then they Get old and realise that vets is a lot of it is putting down animals. <laughs> is it, It's not this wonderful playing yeah. with animals that you think, and it's. I guess it's similar on the on the medical side of things. You dream that you're going to be constantly saving people, and then at, at the end of the day, number one, there's so many restrictions in place to allow you to do that, and number two, it's not a easy win. You know, your your hit ratio isn't going to be completely in your control, so it must be a tough a tough one to see the reality of, I guess. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it's something that you only really appreciate the reality of if you do the job. Mm. I think it's very hard as an outsider, even if you're something like a medical student where you're in that environment, but you're not seeing it from the the exact point of view of being a house officer or a senior house officer. It's, It's only when you drop into that job and you live it hour by hour, minute by minute, that you understand that the very particular stresses are not only on your workload, but also the the relationships with other members of staff, the, with the, the nurses, the consultants, the patients, and, yeah. and so forth.
0: Yeah. Um, how, how do you find looking back at, at your early work as a writer, as a showrunner, <clears throat> as a producer? It's it's a weird one because I, I find from when I was doing music, all my most proud bits of my music... On my most recent bits of music, and the yeah. older bits I cringe at. Yet, a lot of my fan base adore those early bits. They're the bits they're attached to. Is there anything <clears> similar <throat> there with uh, with writing or show running or,
1: or, or putting out a show? Well, I'm I'm actually not all that familiar with my early work. Yeah. In that I I've kind of left it behind. Yes. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've gone back and watched something that that I I made in say the first five years of my career um i i suppose in, in, a recent exception has been bodies because that's been um rerun on bbc iplayer yes, so yes, of course. um I, people have been talking about it and i and some of the things that people were saying made me kind of curious because I, i'd honestly forgotten a lot of the show yeah. so i did kind of go back and because it's easy to to access on iplayer i did go back and and remind myself of some of it. And and that was an interesting experience because a lot I'd forgotten. What I'd also say is that I I think that there's an experience that a lot of us have, which is is that strange kind of TV nostalgia where we remember TV from the past, from our childhood or from young adulthood, and we imagine it being a lot better than it was. And if you go back and watch a show that you watched as a kid, you're often shocked by how clunky it is yeah um so i think that's also part of the reason i tend not to revisit because tv does move on the the technology has moved on um i think actually what i saw of bodies it does stand up i mean it does look like a modern tv show the way it's shot and edited Yeah. but i think if you went farther back in the the things that i've done they would appear to be from another era.
0: Yeah, or, or one of the things that struck me, there's two things kind of that jump out in, in bodies that feel like they would sit perfectly now. And and the first is I think it's it's the thing that's unavoidable as you start is the is the pace of it. It's 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 relentless and I think that really I'd not seen a hospital drama kind of tell that truth so clearly that it's just relentless and 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 high pressure and it kind of shows that it, it i don't know it paints a scenario where the relentlessness of the pace of of working in 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 a hospital really lends itself to mistakes being made but the smallest mistake can be literally life or death so i think that was a real that felt very cuz yeah pacing in general in tv and in films has increased and increased over mm-hmm. the years as editing has become sharper and and quicker and film has become cheaper. Um, So was that a conscious thing, to try and go, right, I want this to be almost overwhelmingly intense at at the start, to say, no, this is the reality, and this isn't... It's not, here's our little drama in, in a hospital.
1: I think it probably reflects what my influences were in terms of TV drama. If I look back to the TV series I was watching as a kid and as a teenager, really up until the time that I went to university... And I sort of stopped watching TV and was much more likely to go to the cinema with my mates rather than sit in and and watch with with my mum and dad and my brother. Um, It's the lack of control there, isn't it? It's it's, it's watching someone else's choice. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that the shows that I really enjoyed back then were the American ones. Yeah. And they went at a different pace. You know, people talk about BBC drama series from the 80s I honestly doubt I watched any of them yeah. I, I didn't have a great deal of affection for, for British TV drama yeah. and certainly now if I if I watch clips of them um, I'm intrigued but I can see that they go at a different pace from the American content yeah. so I think that that was what I took with me when I started scriptwriting. that I wrote short scenes with rapid transitions from from one scenario to another and really wanted to propel the audience through the half hour or the hour or whatever the the episode was
0: yeah was there any or is there still an urge as kind of coming into this world as an outsider of 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 sorts of not being that having a family who are all in TV or writing or anything like that was there an urge to push push boundaries and do things. Because one of the things that that jumped out when I was re-watching some in in prep for this was there was a scene where one of the nurses, there's a a romantic situation, and one of the nurses has her period, and it's discussed, it happens, it's not a major plot point, it's just a reality. And that felt so ahead of its time, because there's things like that that aren't, talked about or addressed on tv and dramas and it, it wasn't in there as a big plot mechanic that we're going to go off of this it was just oh no sometimes people have their period and it means they can't do certain things or can you know with these choices mm. so was that a conscious decision at that stage and going forward to go right let's what what truths aren't being told in tv at the moment
1: i think that again go, goes back to having a, a, as you diagnose an out an outside of you yeah that because I didn't come up through theatre, let's say, and I, and I didn't do an, any kind of uh, filmmaking or, or performing in university, I, I wasn't moulded in that way yeah. where where I think you develop a certain kind of default position about a, about a performing style and a, and a writing style. And certainly early on in my career when I encountered people who had maybe come from a more conventional background and they they did often support the idea that things should be done in the more traditional way uh there are certain things you don't write about and certain things that is kind of how we do it in tv land so in tv land you don't have to worry too much about authenticity you don't have to worry about what real life is like you're creating a a different version that that has its own internal logic and people are comfortable with that so don't mess with it
0: yeah yeah so do you feel because again it's 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 weird because it's stuff that i'm going through as the moment moving into acting from music but both music and acting i didn't have any of that in my family any of that kind of thing um and i'm finding that thing of i want to learn all the rules so I'm if I'm breaking them it's a choice rather Mm. than I'm breaking them out of ignorance it's like right I think it can be restrictive if you've been brought into an industry in a particular way that so many people are then it becomes a bit cookie cutter and all the Mm. same so but equally if you're just there going I'll just do it my way then you're likely not to do it right you're going to make mistakes that that you shouldn't be making I guess so is that a conscious thing of learning which rules to break and which boundaries to push and which boundaries are there
1: turns out for good reason (laughs) yeah i think that's a really good point when i first started writing i learned by apprenticeship i was writing the series and i'd never written scripts before so they were showing me scripts and they were giving me um, an insight into some fundamental rules of writing I mean, a lot of what I wrote was was modelled on TV I'd, I'd seen growing up. You know, I, I had, I think, an instinct for um, when you end a scene and, and the, the kind of moment at the end of a scene that motivates the cut to the next scene and so on. Um, but there were times when I, I made what you might call rookie mistakes and these right. were pointed out. And I absorbed those things and then actually... Um, When I got more serious about my writing, basically when the series was recommissioned and and, um, it looked like I might spend a little bit more time working in TV than I'd anticipated, I did some of those kind of workshops, the sort of Robert McKee weekend screenplay writing courses and read some books on, on story structure and screenwriting and all those things to try and absorb some of the principles of how you approach writing a script how you how you construct story i've now kind of reached the point where i think i'm familiar with a lot of that yeah. but i don't think about it a lot and becomes instinctive. it becomes, it becomes right? instinctive yeah. and but i think it, it always remains useful as an analytical tool if you are in a situation where you've written something and you have misgivings about it and you can't quite put your finger on What's not working, then being able to go back to the orthodox model and look at what a conventional story structure would be—that yeah. might well illuminate where you've gone wrong. It might be that you need to change the order of, of some events. It might be that you just need to to point up what which particular story beat you're you're aiming for in a in a given scene or sequence. So all those things end up being part of your toolbox.
0: Yeah, completely. And I think it can just. Studies of such things, and to to test your work against such things, can improve it if those adjustments need to be made. But can s- strengthen your resolve if you're going, oh, it should be like this, but no, it it's this way for a reason. The reason I've got it like this, and it can give you that kind of can make you f- find your way on a on a scene or anything else because it's like, no, I've tested it now. It's not just oh, this is how I've written it. I don't really know what I'm doing. Hmm. Here's how it's landing.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing is is that it's helpful if you know that stuff. If you're unfortunate enough to encounter the structure ideologues, the the, the people who will analyse your script and tell you that you fail to follow a conventional structure, yeah. and that sometimes is done without any understanding of where the strengths of the script lie. That that they're not actually looking at something that's a really exciting moment or a really great character moment, right, yeah, all course. they want to see is the um, the rigid enactment of story orthodoxy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um So one of the things, I'll move on from Bodies, I promise. Uh, anyone who's tuned in and hasn't seen Bodies, it's not going to be a whole podcast about that, but um, one of the things I really, there felt like some great foreshadowing in, in Bodies for what was to come and be... Kind of amped up in line of duty and in bodyguard with the kind of the grey lines between who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And I think uh, there was an American series called The Shield, which was a favourite of mine. And I loved there how how almost elegantly that switch between you're thinking these lead cops, are, they're the complete villains, they've crossed the line, they've gone too far. And, and within one scene, you're like, well, they had to. Do you know what I mean? I'm on their side, or they're the good guys or bad guys. I think that, that comes up really delicately, constantly in, in bodies, because like, I was watching it uh, when I was rewatching some episodes recently. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and the guy that she was clearly like, he's such a bastard, he's horrible, he's the worst. I was like, well, he's kind of uh, just made a small mistake, the same as the guy who's being presented as the good guy made a small mistake. And it depends yeah. how you address that in a and approach that so or was that a conscious effort early on to go let's not go the traditional tropes of here's our hero here's our villain and they're at loggerheads
1: yeah i think that's always been something that's been part of my approach um in the last sort of 10 years or so particularly things that are set within uh our public institutions like our hospital system or our criminal yeah. justice system that you can choose to to show out and out villains, and actually there there are some yeah in those institutions, but it's less dramatically interesting than showing something that I think is is much more common and more uh, troubling, which is you have people who go into those institutions for all the right reasons
0: yeah.
1: I-, I idealists who become cynics who yeah. become people who are in many ways working to oppose the values of the organisation they've joined. And I think with bodies it was important to to show one very specific thing, which is that that all doctors make mistakes. So rather than demonising the guy who is the the negligent surgeon, the guy who is actually a danger to patients and is being protected by the institution, it was important to humanise him. Yeah. To, because he didn't go into medicine to harm people. It's just that certain things happened in his training and, and his experience and the jobs he was given that have led him to a point where the system is permitting his negligent approach to certain procedures. And, and, I, and I guess I felt it was really important for the lay audience to understand that there's a difference between negligence and error. Yeah. Sometimes it, I, I find it very problematic when there are stories of medical error in the press, and there's a real kind of witch hunt to say this person shouldn't ever practice medicine. They should. They might even have to go to prison. Yeah. That really bothers me a lot. You know, yeah. a, a police officer can can kill someone, and they won't go to prison. But but a doctor trying to save someone's life who makes yeah. a, a, an error of judgment. People want them to go to prison. That's and that insane. Mean,
0: to make those judgments multiple times a day, every day, it's 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 mind blowing. Yeah, and yeah. again, I think that's a really nice, yeah, a great way to have of told that story and to get to get that across. To have someone that, as a viewer, you are kind of, oh, he's the worst. But then gradually, yeah, like, well, that wasn't actually. You're now realizing you. The way it's written and presented, I think it allows the viewer to realise their own bias, to realise that they may read that article and go, "He should be, he should be put in prison," mm. and then kind of go, "Oh no, actually, once you're seeing it that day in and day out, you can kind of mm. s- see past that, I guess."
1: Yeah, I, I, I think so, and I, I think that it's also important if you're if you're showing an institution that they're such complex organisations that I think that you need quite complex drama to explore them.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I, I think that a lot of our medical drama and our police drama isn't very complex. It might be complex in terms of the plotting of the, the story of the week, but it's not very complex or sophistication in terms of its examination of the institution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, touching upon the word complex leads us beautifully back onto Line of Duty. Um, How much do you have to do on the research side and and getting advice side of things? Because one of the things that became a meme on this series was all the abbreviations and acronyms and a few conversations that you're like, what did they just say? I thought, oh, uh, undercover, right, yeah, I get what that is. So how is that from, or how's the, the balance between researcher and and creative i guess in 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 that world and that part of script writing
1: well we're very fortunate that we've got a couple of very good police advisors so if if i'm constructing a a a plot and it hinges on a piece of procedure i I don't want to guess whether that happens in the real world or not because i then don't want to have to unravel the story if it doesn't so i will consult with them if it's a major plot point if it's purely about detail then i won't consult with them until there's a script and and then get them to highlight any procedures they feel would happen differently and and um that's also the point at which there's usually an injection of jargon where i know there are certain uh legal terms that police officers use and i'm familiar with a lot of them but the there are also very specialised ones, um, and I want to be true to the way that police officers talk. In the way that I I tried to be true to the way doctors yeah. interact with each other. And one of the the things that I I was very eager to achieve on my medical dramas was not to have doctors talk in a way that was like two lay people talking to each other. Yeah, that actually doctors speak in a in a highly technical language, and so my medical series had a lot of jargon in. And that's something that has got more and more part of the identity of Line of Duty.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Um, Well, there's one thing that I wanted to kind of get explained, I guess, here. Um, I swear it's a term that's only been started to be used in recent years and feels quite American, but explain the kind of role of a showrunner. Because it's not simply a writer, it's not simply a producer. It's kind of it's having mm. uh, a greater role in in both, right? And you're you're showrunner, I guess, for Line of Duty and Bodyguard and all these and, mm. and Bodies, I and, guess. Mm. So what is the yeah? The, I mean, the role again, of a that's showrunner that's or the greater role?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because the the term was brought in in the US to um, avoid the ambiguities of. So many people being called executive producers. I was going to say, all
0: the different types of producer. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 yeah.
1: You watch <laughs> an American series and you look at the list of credits, and there's often there's a dozen people who are the most senior type of producer, executive producer, but many of those have no day, no day to day involvement in the series at all. Yeah, yeah. So it was a way of identifying the creative leader or leaders of the project, often, and not always, but almost always the creator of the series and the lead writer or yeah. writers so that was something that was then borrowed for the UK system where there'd been a, a much greater demarcation between writing and producing and directing when I was first working in TV as a writer there was a real barrier to even getting on the set or getting into yes, casting or being in production meetings And it took a while to break those barriers down. And and Bodies was the first series where I I took on a a true producing role and was able to function as the showrunner, the creative leader of the project. And I've been fortunate to to maintain that role on all my original series since then. So in terms of the day-to-day, it means I'm involved in all aspects of the production. So where we spend our money, who's in it, who directs it, who films it, uh, what we shoot in a day, whether what we've shot is, is what we want or we need to redo any bits or add any bits, how it's edited together, how it's promoted, all those things. I'm I'm in a very fortunate and privileged position to participate in.
0: It's, it's such a strange world that for so long writers were so... Kept out of the room as such. It's kind of all that time creating the the real the building blocks of, of of all of it, and then you hand it over and find out in a year or so how it turned out. It's such a strange assistant to have had. You'd think the person that originally conceived it would be the the perfect person to have around and have their input and have their engagement.
1: I mean, you're paraphrasing almost exactly what I said when i was told that i couldn't come to casting or yeah. i couldn't visit the set that's just insane yeah. and there were so many things that that were changed or modified in some bizarre way and what i was told was oh we didn't understand this line of dialogue or we didn't oh we thought you meant this or that and it's very frustrating that no one thought well maybe even just ask the writer because okay. it might actually move the, the, the discussion in the right way. And so the, the situation now is one where it, it does trouble me when I hear that, that writers are really excluded from the process. In fact, you know, I'd, I'd done bodies and I had a meeting in between series one and series two just before we were given a production schedule for series two. So I thought if there was a big delay, I might do another series. I met with a producer who appreciated that I'd been the showrunner on bodies but said that she would be the producer of this and she just worked with a director who she wanted to bring on board and he didn't like the writer being in the room when they were doing casting and i was just thinking this is just insane i'm, I'm just never going to work for you people or work with you people yeah. um because i i just think that's unacceptable and it still goes on you know e- even very successful very high profile writers Find themselves at times excluded from the production. Yeah. That decisions are made without their knowledge. Um, sometimes there's, there's this um, almost a conspiracy to keep the writer out of the loop yeah. because it might be it might be irritating if they have a view that disagrees with everyone. Yeah. Whereas I'm I'm not involved in those conversations because I want to impose my rigid view on everyone. I just want to be in those conversations because it may be that I've got an insight or a contribution that they aren't aware of. And that will just then make everyone able to make the most informed decision about what the right thing to do in that moment is.
0: And that's it. It's it's making the most informed decision rather than imposing anything. There was, I, I, I worked on America's series at one point and It was filming over here, but the writers were in the US. And there was such a fear of going anywhere slightly off script. And I think if you've got the right team, often they can be some of the greatest moments when the actor who's got to know that specific character and that character Mm. only for five, six episodes, two, three seasons or whatever, can put in a bit of their own input. But if the writer was there, and again, knowing who the writers were, knowing that they were creatives and up for collaboration Mm. if they were there there would have been a discussion and stuff would have changed because they weren't it was constantly this rigid here's the dialogue Stick exactly to that so i think the benefit of having the writer there it goes both forwards and backwards it gives that flexibility on both sides and uh, when i had simon pegg on he had examples and i've heard charlie brooker talk of this of some bits because of something that's coming on later, it's key that it has to be that way. And if the writer can briefly explain that, then that's great, and you can move on, and mm. it's done. Whereas if it seems that it's this note, that you cannot change this, then it's going to often breed a bad atmosphere and a bad yeah. a bad response.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the important thing is, is is to be available, that if if you feel that nothing should change, but then you're not available for discussion, then I think that's not collaborative. Yeah. and so you're as as guilty as the people who change things unilaterally without referring to the writer at all and those examples of things where something is important to the overall arc and no one's noticed it the, the the director has missed missed it or the actor saying the line doesn't realize that that does relate to something that happened in a a previous episode or a future episode, you can get in the situation where it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't get filmed. It's not even that they, they, they film it and then do a take without it in yeah. or they film it and say, well, if it doesn't work, we can always cut it in post. It ends up some weird kind of workshop that gets filmed that maybe doesn't bear any relationship to the way the scene was originally conceived. So there are plenty of stories out there from writers who've had that experience, and I certainly had that experience early on, where sometimes the decision to to change something was was so arbitrary and at times just so thick-headed yeah. that you kind of wonder why that runaway train was, was even allowed to happen. I mean, I remember doing a, a series very early on and the there was a scene that was written as a day scene and uh, the director felt it would look more atmospheric to shoot it at night. But they didn't change the dialogue. So all the dialogue related to things that happened during the day and the audience knows those things happened during the day. Oh, wow. But it was it was like no one even cared. It was extraordinary. Yeah. That's
0: that's mad to hear. Um, you touched upon, or a couple of uh, times, you touched upon uh, the casting part of it and I think... Casting directors and casting with showrunners involved as well is one of the most overlooked parts of, mm. of the industry. I think it's no mistake that some of... or most of the biggest and best TV shows in recent years have been f- full of cast that, uh, up until that point, you didn't particularly know them. There weren't these huge names. Mm. I think Game of Thrones is a, a prime example. A, a Line of Duty as, as as well, in those early days, people obviously... Vicky had done this as England stuff like that, but never in that kind of role. And I think it really makes a massive difference, and it, it gets overlooked. How is that? How do you find working with casting directors? It's, it's Kate Rhodes James, James on line yeah. of who I've had t- t- two good castings with and one awful one. So I can't, I can't decide. <laughs> I need to get one more good one just to really yeah. know I've got her on side. Um, but how do you find that? And how important is it? And how frustrating? Can it be when you're trying to find the character that you've you've written in the real world?
1: Yeah, I think casting is one of those things that is possibly one of the most difficult things because you can't ever get away from the human factor. Every every actor is different. Every actor will perform an audition slightly differently. And once you've got someone cast in a role... Then that's when the hard work really begins in terms of developing the the detailed approach to each scene and the yeah. character arcs. So you, the most important thing is 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 to have that that right level of collaboration. So what you're looking for is is to create someone who's right for the role, but also someone who is a good fit for the rest of the cast. You know, it yeah. is it is kind of a a balancing act you can get someone who's absolutely absolutely perfect for a role but they kind of skew the whole show towards that role and maybe they unbalance things and you and it can end up being quite a complicated thing to to come up with a, a a whole cast who fit together very well in terms of my approach to auditions i I I generally want to see people who come in very well prepared. It it frustrates me, an actor coming in who hasn't studied the material, even if they're just auditioning for a short scene that's that's maybe a page or half a page. They don't know the lines. They're just looking down at the script all the time. I'm just not going to cast them.
0: It's mad because that's uh, my outlook in my my limited time in this industry that's the one bit you've got control of as an actor, yeah. of learning the lines. All the rest of it, you've got no control. It can be so much on first impression, yeah. as, as you said, the, the connecting with other people in the in mm. the already cast. So yeah, it blows my mind that the one bit that you can control is knowing your lines and mm. going in and doing what you can do. Again, here you go, I can do this. So yeah. it's mind-blowing that that's still something that gets... And again, also being aware that there's so many people after every single role. Yeah. So again, to be... That casual on something is a...
1: Hmm. Well, it's career
0: suicide. Yeah.
1: You know, it's it's uh, we just wouldn't see them again for any role. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if someone comes in and they've worked really hard, if they're not right for that specific role that they're auditioning for, then you keep them in mind. And if you really warm to someone and they're very clearly working hard and they're committed to their craft, yeah. then you're going to want to find a role for them because they're yeah, the of kind course. of person that you want to work with.
0: Is, is is that a key part as as well? I mean, you touched upon... The family of of you, Vicky, Martin, Adrian, um, and and a a few others behind the scenes. Is it because something else I've noticed from bodies to line of duty to to bodyguard, there's some return players. Mm. You've you've, you've worked with a lot of, of similar people. Is that a key part? Number one, knowing that someone can do the job that you need them to do. But number two, knowing that you can be around them, can enjoy them on set. That they're not going to bring a bad atmosphere or, or any baggage is that a key part as well? Because I, it was weird, and I, I always go in and end up going into this story. It seems, but I, I, when I was on on taboo originally, my role was t- tiny. But because I'm on this outsider thing as well, every time I'd be wrapped, I'd ask if I can stay and watch because I'm learning from Stephen Graham and Tom Hardy and all these amazing people, and that w- willingness to be on set, to be around, to learn is what made the character end up growing and growing. Because they'd be like, oh, well, Pip's here still. Let's sling him in another scene or get him in this or get him in that kind of mm. thing. So it felt that that eagerness and, and 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 warmth on set had as much to do with my success on that role as what I did on camera, mm. if you know what I mean. So is that a, a, a balance that you have to, to take into account there?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think that you're always making a bit of a leap into the unknown work, working with with anyone because of um the as as i said the the way in which someone will uh, portray a character is often quite unpredictable yeah. and if if you are kind of looking for certain things that you can rely on then basic things like having a strong work ethic always being prepared for the scenes yeah being someone who, when they're on set, is, is a team player, um, someone who also will help you by pointing out things within the script that they think need more work but do it in the right way. All, all those things are incredibly helpful towards doing the best quality production possible. Yeah. So often when I'm working on something new, there will be, Lists of, of actors generated for for the various roles, and on and on those lists will be mainly people I've never worked with before, but one or two people that I have worked with yeah. before. And it's really about finding the balance between not not typecasting, not not picking someone who is maybe too easy a choice, yeah. but also working with people who you know are going to be there. Working hard all through the process because you know we all have our ups and downs in a production. Some days are, are easy, some days are tough. Some days an actor's got a lot of prep they need to get through, and other days they only have a couple of lines and and it's a relatively easy day. Yeah. So you need to you need to know that you've got people who are who are are going to deliver.
0: Yeah, I mean, and those r- r- relatively easy days are just as as telling right and just as important because if you've not got much to do that can be when people's minds will wonder or or frustrations or build so yeah that must be key Um, i mean you touched upon unknown elements um you've obviously got this amazing core cast and i want to sling craig parkinson in there as well because he was fantastic for ages i feel i've left him out there kept Mm. (laughs) it kept coming to mind but you've also had some amazing kind of a one series kind of Great people from Tandy Newton, the Danny Mays, Keely Halls, um, and Stephen Graham in this last mm. season. How do you find that kind of bringing someone into the fold, often aware that they're only there for a temporary time, and it's got to be that 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 balance of them not overwhelming the the balance, quite literally the the balance, and but also having enough about them to 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 to, to be able to be dropped in and have an impact. and and leave again or stick around?
1: Yeah, I think it's easier now with Line of Duty than it used to be because we um, have built up a body of work. Mm. So I think people who are at the level of, say, a a Stephen Graham or a Tandy Newton are kind of aware of what they're coming into. So uh, we can have a very informed and, and helpful conversation about how the the character is going to fit into an established world, uh, because they can see the preceding seasons, they can see the the acting style of, of Martin and Vicky and Adrian. Although obviously, yeah. you know, Stephen was hugely familiar with them because he worked yes. with all of them before. Yeah. So that that ends up being part of it, and and also you know I I also value the opinion of the the regular cast. I. I if there's someone who is available and interested in playing our guest lead, then I'll always have a chat to, to Martin and Vicky and Adrian and mm. say, "Is this someone you've worked with before? What do you think?" Any, and, and if they oh, said, oh, "Oh no, they're a lunatic," or "Oh, they're awful," then we wouldn't cast them.
0: Again, that, just knowing now. And now. That must have been the easiest conversation with Stevie then. They said it worked with all of them. Yeah. It <laughs> got on with all of the gunnings. So yeah. It's like, no, it's all good.
1: Yeah, it kind of felt when Stephen joined <laughs> the series, it was like, why weren't you here to begin with? It's <laughs> yeah, like, well, he's it such a great been. fit. And yeah. and Craig the same. I mean, Craig had done a lot with, with uh, Martin and Vicky before. Yeah. And and that's no accident. It's because they have similar acting styles. And if you were casting a a, a film or a TV series, then you can see them being a good blend because yeah. they appear to come from the same world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes complete sense. Well, I mean, we're getting t- t- towards the hour mark. So I'll start to wrap things up, but I want to kind of talk about how, how different it was when the body, not the bodyguard, when bodyguard came out, I'm, I'm being very careful not to get the, <laughs> the, 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 the on there 'cause as said, you'd had this experience of the, of the slow build long game, of Line of Duty, of developing these characters slowly, of even, as we said, of of having the attention elsewhere for the early points. Do you know what I mean? It's so how mm. you can find your characters and find where it's all going. Bodyguard was straight away huge attention, huge pressure, thankfully huge praise and excitement and, and tension. But how was that as, as, a, as a, a project... To, 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 to run and put out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that the origin of Bodyguard was actually because Line of Duty was on BBC Two. Yeah. And uh, going back to around the time we were doing Series Three, it seemed like it was going to stay on BBC right. Two. Um, and that also meant probably we didn't have much of a future because BBC Two tends not to do long-running, returning series. So there was an appetite from the BBC to do a thriller that could play on BBC One. So the whole development process on Bodyguard was to create something that would be more mainstream and have more immediate impact. Uh, And that doesn't mean that, that there was any kind of sacrifice of artistic values. It was purely that the choices you make about how the story starts, what the, the premise is. Yeah, sure. It it had to be something uh bigger and more more immediate than the premise for Line of Duty. Um, and, and obviously we we were incredibly incredibly fortunate that we got that great cast. Yeah. I think that the premise plus those actors plus the the trailer really helped bring the audience i think that the audience was able to to grasp what was being offered and that's why they came and i think we were very fortunate that that we delivered on expectation in the first couple of episodes yeah. and that then created the 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 momentum that carried us through to the end of the, the season
0: yeah i mean i think the cast is 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 a great thing to highlight because it was a perfect balance of there were some big names in there but there weren't any C- celebrities as such, they were mm. all big names for what they've done previously, for mm. the, for their the, their body of work, and yeah. and that just yeah, it's it's it, it it's weird because it did launch so big, but then again, you go through you're like, well, there's no there's not this big Hollywood star attached to it in any way, but it was yeah, if it, it felt like well, a there is now, obviously, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, of course. Um So w- with that, how did you find? Again, the immediacy then equally means there'll be the immediate critique and, and, cr- and cr- criticism and backlash. And I enjoyed uh, watching you deal with a lot of it on, on social media and stuff like that. But how do you f- find that? Because there's there's that kind of that human defence mechanism, or, is it, or it's supposedly a, a, a survival mechanism, that we remember the negative far easier than we remember the positive. And... I know it from my own own life on social media that mm. you can have all these reviews saying it's amazing and then one prick on Twitter will say, well, you're technically you should have done this and that will be the one that sticks in your mind. Mm. How have you found that and how do you balance that in the kind of addressing it or walking away from it? Or
1: I think if people are expressing their opinion, then it doesn't really bother me because I can go and look at something that is much more valuable information, which is the... The audience research so a, a, a newspaper review or or a blog or whatever it is 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 one person's opinion yeah and largely that has no value in itself i, I think what what has value is data that originates from the behavior of, of thousands of people so yeah. it can be much more robust uh robust you can draw much more robust conclusions from it so the audience research on bodyguard was was telling me positives all all the way through that in terms of what the not just what the viewing figures were but how much people liked each episode that's also part of the audience research that we get so um i I certainly felt very happy with how it had performed so a, a, a bad opinion piece doesn't bother me what I do take issue with is uh, someone either lying or distorting facts or inventing facts yeah. as the platform for their argument. So I will challenge that. Yeah, It's like someone going on Twitter to claim the earth is flat or that, that vaccinations cause autism. You've yeah. got to challenge that. Yeah. So if someone does like I mean, examples are, I mean, for the recent series of Line of Duty, there was a a reviewer who said that the plot twists were preposterous and then invented something that had never happened yeah. as his argument. So yeah. I challenged that. There was a um, a reviewer who said the plot was too complicated to follow and then gave some examples of things that he thought were puzzling and bizarre and didn't fit together and just made a complete tit of himself because yeah. he missed things that the audience got very easily. Yeah. And then there's that that kind of thing where people do the backhanded compliments where they say it's full of plot holes, but they don't... I mean, this this guy who did talk about the plot holes just scored so many own goals because yeah. he actually laid out for everyone to see what a fucking idiot he is. Yeah, it was all there. Yeah, whereas usually what they say is it's full of plot holes, but then they never... They never identify one because they know if they do, they run the risk of it being revealed that they've either misunderstood something or they've completely missed something. So those are the things I'll challenge. And any distortion of fact, anyone who says that this wouldn't happen in the real world when there's plenty of evidence that it would, often those people have an agenda. So with bodyguard, a lot of so-called bodyguards in real life came out of the woodwork, but they were people who weren't... Um, specialist protection officers in the police they were people who were bodyguards for hire for celebrities right so they they don't use police training methods they're not police officers so they have no responsibility to uphold the law their job is to protect their client so often those criticisms were invalid but what's also going on is that i know that media editors are instructing so-called journalists, to write a piece yeah. which is slagging the show off and go and find a bodyguard or someone who purports to be a bodyguard to slag it off. And, and this happened on my medical shows. They'll ask a doctor, is this right? And a doctor will say, yeah, okay, well, we won't use you. Ask the next guy, is this right? Yeah, we won't use you. Ask the next guy, is this right? No, right, we'll use you. That's the way it works. Yeah, and I just think that needs to be called out when it happens and also, you know, a lot of the journalism is that kind of smug, elitist, if it's popular, it must be crap kind of nonsense.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, I think that's... Uh, I think the clickbait mentality of journalism has found its way off of the internet. You know, you know, off of clicks. It's kind of... it's It's gone everywhere. And there can be that kind of, oh, we need to just be contrarian, essentially, just because... I'm not. I'm not knowledgeable. If I'm enjoying something that everyone's enjoying, it it, it, yeah. it removes my expertise.
1: Yeah, I think you've got to look at the you know the the kinds of people who write reviews. You have the the sort of tabloid end, and what they're looking for is the the sensationalist story. They're yeah. looking for a, a bit of clickbait. They're looking to show a picture of one of the actresses with no clothes on, or whatever it whatever horrible tawdry thing that they particularly want to do then you have the broadsheet end and they're fundamentally people who've got the job because of people they know so they went to the right university but they're fundamentally a bit thick Uh, so there's just some posh twat who's got the job and that puts them in a position where they can can be really smug and snide and and slag off uh, people who work very hard who earn the position they're in.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a great point. It, it kind of goes back to. Um, it came to mind when you were talking about doctors and how they're trying their best to save someone's life, and sometimes mm. an error is made. I think a, f- a friend of mine, a, a, a Brett Goldstein, who's an actor and has got a film podcast and is a, a, a writer, we talk a lot about how we both generally just rave about the stuff that we like online because. There's an awareness that no one has set out to make a bad film or a bad TV show or a bad or whatever else, and it's bizarre to have the arrogance to swarm on stuff like that
1: and try and attack and try
0: and make these things. It's, yeah, it's, but
1: it's I, weird... I think that I that I think again going back to how I started this this answer when we we opened up this subject. There's a difference between opinion and fact. Yes. So I can look at an opinion and decide from that that the person who holds that opinion is a word beginning with C. Yeah. But I don't need to challenge it because yeah. it's their opinion. It's where they they appear to be dealing in the currency of facts, but they're not. Yeah. So they're distorting facts yeah. or they're disputing things which are true. That's what needs to be challenged. So when that, that goes on in reviews where... I mean, going back to my medical shows, yeah. the, the right-wing press wanted to slag off the, the shows, so they wrote articles about how th- th- that it, uh, certain things in it were wrong, as if someone who works in Fleet Street knows more about being a junior hospital doctor than I did yeah. when I was a junior hospital doctor. Yeah. That's offensive to me. Yeah. And the same applies now when you have these journalists who do no fact-checking, they just write something like police officers think line of duty is ridiculous because Cressida Dick said it was ridiculous. Yeah. Who doesn't own a TV yeah. and doesn't understand that it's a series about an, an anti-corruption unit? So their job is to, to find anti to find police corruption. Yeah. That's why there's police corruption in it. Yeah. Um, so. It's things like that that, that 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 do irritate me, and I and I do find that social media is a, a useful tool to to be able to to put out what I hope is is factual correction yeah. of these distortions. Yeah,
0: that's great to have that platform as a right to reply as such. Um, I'll round things up now on two things. Just one that comes to mind. It feels. Line of Duty and Bodyguard had this and I think it was also a big effect on Peaky Blinders that the moment they got onto a Netflix or basically found their way to an American audience mm. was the moment it kind of seemed to ramp up a whole other level. It seemed to be this whole new jump up in in, in, in the, the stakes, I guess. But more than anything, the excitement around it. did. Did you find that and how's that kind of, how's that been and has that influenced how you approach anything or the way you want to to tell a story I said you already have said that your influences were always the American ways of making TV so how has that been to get that that praise on that side of the Atlantic
1: yeah I mean that's been great I I I would say that bodyguards kind of found a relationship with the American audience that my other works haven't so far so although line of duty and actually bodies were were shown in the U.S. and and did get um, really positive reviews they they never reached that that sort of point of, of critical mass when they became a, a, a bona fide a hit yeah. whereas with with bodyguard because of the the reach of netflix and also i think maybe the style of the show it's yeah. it's really worked for the american audience and it does it does go back to my influences the fact that uh, I love American TV I love the, the confidence in showing action the, um, the the real commitment to having a really driving narrative that propels the audience through the viewing experience all, all those things uh, I think have contributed to um, to the, the great response we've got.
0: Yeah that's fantastic well I'll wrap things up by just asking what's ahead I guess more line of, of duty. Is, is is it that, are you in that situation where everything's going s- s- so well, you've got no time to think about any other ideas or options or plans or, yeah, what's the...
1: I mean, I, I wouldn't say that things are going so well that I'm, I, um, I'm resting on my laurels. I mean, I think we're very fortunate to be in this position with line of duty where we knew we had a series six before we did series five. Great. So that's there for us either to round off the series or if we're fortunate enough to do a series seven to carry on um, and those are conversations we're, we're having at the moment with the BBC and also internally yeah. about when we might be ready to shoot again and that depends on the availability of the team, the cast and so on uh, and, and the same with bodyguards so um, there, there will definitely be more line of duty, we know that uh, and so at the moment I'm kind of looking at my schedule, if Um, If we get into line of duty or bodyguard two very quickly, then I think I'll just roll straight into doing those. But if there's a significant delay for whatever reason, then I'd like to do a a project in the interim.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's it's been a pleasure and it's it's flown by. So thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Pip. Cheers.
1: You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces.
0: There we go. That was Jed Mercurio. Um, I'm going to l- l- keep this outro short. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week. Who have I got on next week? Let me have a look on my phone. Um, I've recorded such good ones lately. Um, while I'm looking, I'd recommend you check out the Pod Bible. Uh, the Pod Bible is a podcast magazine that is free, um, it's available online digitally, or you can collect physical copies from various places in London and Brighton. Um, Oh, I've just looked, and next week's guest is the one that I was teasing in the intro. (laughs) So I'll tell you now, for the few who stick around right until the end, next week, I'm joined by Charlie Brooker. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? Wonderfully exciting. Great to have Charlie on. So if all goes to plan, this week, next week, and the week after are three of... The best, most critically acclaimed British screenwriters ever. So it's a hell of a run if you're into that kind of thing. And I hope you are. So I'll see you all next week. Patreon.com slash Scroobius Pip if you want in on that goodness. Um, and to find out who the third of these three I'm hyping is. Um, other than that, I'll see you next week with Charlie Brooker. Ta-ta!